Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. And it was good. Then he created the land animals, each according to its kind, and told them to multiply and fill the land with animals. And it was good. Then he created man. And he said, let's make man in our image, and after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the animals that walk the earth. So God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. And God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose whose fruit yields seed, and to you it shall be for food. And God saw everything that he had made, and it wasn't good, it was very good. And then God rested from all that he had done, and he created the Sabbath. Then God planted a garden in the eastward part of Eden. And he put man there, whom he had formed. And he told man to tend the garden, to take care of it, to name the animals. And rivers flowed out of of Eden. Four rivers flowed from Eden. And God took man and put him in the garden to tend to it. And he said, from every tree that is in this garden you may eat, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat of that tree, on that day you will die. And then God looked at Adam and said, it is not good for you to be alone. You need a helper. You need a helpmate. So, from his rib, he took a bone and created Eve. And when Adam beheld her, he said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. And God saw everything that he had made. And it was so good. Then one day, Eve was in the garden and came upon the serpent. And the serpent said, Has God really said you cannot eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Did he not say you can eat the tree? We said we can have anything that we can we want here except that one tree, because God said we will die. And the serpent told her, that's not true. There's no way you'll die if you eat this. So when she saw that the tree was good for food, she took it and ate it. She presented it to her husband, and it looked good to him too. And he ate it as well. And then they realized they were naked. And they became ashamed. So they sold some fig leaves together. 
to cover themselves. And God came upon them in a garden and said, Who told you you were naked? Who told you? I didn't tell you that. Who told you? Adam said, Talk to her. She, she told me this. She said, Eve said, Blame the snake. The, snake's what, uh, the snake is who told me. So God had some things to say. To the snake, to the serpent, he said it would slither on its belly for the rest of its existence. To the woman, he would multiply her sorrows in conception, and she would hurt when she gave birth. And her desire would be to her husband, who would rule over her. And to Adam, he cursed the very ground that he had just created and said that it's not going to be simple now to make a living. There are going to be thistles and weeds. You're going to have to work hard for your food. And you will die. You will return to the dust of the ground. And then the members of the God family turned to one another and said, man has become like one of us to know good and to know evil. And just in case, in this state, he reaches out and grabs at the tree of life, we need to kick them out. We need to shut it down. We're going to put angels at the edge of the garden, and we will close down the garden of Eden. So he drove man out, and he placed caravan at the gates, and a flaming sword, and the tree of life was cut off. It is at that point that our history begins, and the only thing to save us is atonement. We require this day, and all of mankind requires this day because of what happened many years ago. Note that at one point, all was good. In fact, it wasn't just good. It was very good. It was very, very good. And not long after wanting to make man in his image and his likeness and creating this beautiful garden, he now kicks man out and says, you need to fend for yourself. And we're going to guard this tree. He will not have access to it. And from that point in that decision to evict man from Eden, to cut off access to the tree of life, our story has been about atonement. Recall what he said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 11. Who told you that you were naked? You know what he was telling Adam? You know what he was asking Adam and Eve? Who came between us? I told, I gave you everything you needed to know. And someone comes along and tells you you're naked, and now everything is everything's lost. Who told you? Who did you let come between us? Who compromised the trust that we had? 
Let's go to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. And see the instructions for this very sacred day. Leviticus 23, we'll pick up in verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, also the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in the soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all of your dwellings. And it shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. And you shall afflict your souls. On the ninth day of the month at evening, from evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. So we have very specific and detailed instructions on how this day was to be kept. The children of Israel received here from God through Moses very detailed instructions. They were to fast. They were to do no work at all. Recall the other holy days, there was to be no servile work. But on the day of atonement, there is no work. They were to make an offering to God, they were to give an offering to God. They were to afflict their souls and do it for the entire 24-hour period from sunset until sunset. And this day was a special Sabbath. That's why this word, as it is written here, is Shabbat Shabbaton, which is the Sabbath of Sabbaths. It was one of the most holy days of the year, even today. Uh, fellows that I work with who are who are uh, Jews and are not practicing fast on this day. They still work, actually, but they fast because this was such an important day. So as we gather together here to worship and to hear a message, we can talk about fasting. We heard, we heard messages about fasting. Last year, Pastor Adrian spoke on the two goats. That's all part of the part and parcel of the symbolism of the Day of Atonement. A couple of weeks ago, Deacon Jan talked about Jubilee. We know that the Jubilee was presented every 50th year on the Day of Atonement. We went through that a couple of weeks ago. Last week, Pastor Adrian talked about the real sanctuary. And the redemptive acts of our real high priest when he was covering Hebrews chapter 9. These are all part and parcel messages that revolve around this theme of atonement. But as we gather today to worship God on this Sabbath of Sabbaths, on this high, very special Sabbath day, what I would like to do is review the story of mankind from the perspective of atonement. What I want us to see is that from the time that God banished us from Eden, everything we do points toward atonement. Everything that God has done for us, everything He expects of us, points us to the fulfillment of atonement. Not the day, but the ultimate state of being. God's desire for us to be at one with Him. And to understand that, what we first need to do is to understand the impact of sin. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 6. Let's look at the impact of sin as we look at 
the history of man and its home. We just reviewed the initial stages of the history of man through Adam and Eve, and we see the impact of their sin, the fact that they were banished from the Garden of Eden, that they had complete atonement with God, Adam, Eve, and God. And they lost that. Years later, we can see Genesis chapter 6, and in verse 5, And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. We just reviewed the creation account and saw that man was the epitome of his creation. It was what what he finished creation with, so it was his final act, the last thing he made before he rested, because this was going to be a special creation. He was going to create man to be after his likeness and after his image. But then our acts, our behavior, made him sorry that he even went down this road. He was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Imagine a perfect being like God being sorry that he made us. Sin causes God grief and sadness. Let's go to Isaiah 59. Isaiah chapter 59. seeing us. 
is what he's telling the children of Israel. Sin separates man from God. Note how complete this separation is. The sin is described as hands being defiled, fingers with iniquity, lips have spoken lies, and tongue has uttered perversity. The entire being is sinful when we separate ourselves from God. And we can see here, it has nothing to do with God's abilities. God's hand is not shortened. His ear is not made heavy. It's iniquity that separates us from God. Matthew chapter 26, as we continue to look at the impact of sin, while we look at the history of atonement. Matthew 26. Moving forward into the through time, to the sacrifice of Christ, to the crucifixion account. Until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There came a time in the history of man when our Savior became sin. When he took all of the sin that has ever been committed onto his shoulders, and he became sin. And much like God spoke to Israel, to Judah, through Isaiah, he spoke the same effects take the place of Christ. And they became separated. Christ, as he is, is praying, or as whatever vision he has of God, his Father, at the time of his, of his being crucified, he knew that God had turned his back on him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because sin separates men from God. Even our Savior, when he took upon the sins of the world upon his shoulders, was separated from his Father for a time. So much so that he cried out, Why have you forsaken me? And his anguish isn't the fact that he didn't know what was coming. I, I can't imagine he didn't know what was coming. But it was the feeling for once in his life that he was apart from his father, that they were separated, and his father had to turn his back. There came a time when Christ himself was cut off from the father because he became sin for us. John chapter 17. John 17. Just before his arrest, Passover meal was observed. And at the end of the Passover meal, Christ prays to his Father in front of his disciples. He does so. It's recorded for us by John in the 17th chapter. We'll pick it up at verse 1. Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. 
And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life, our goal, is to know God, is to get one with him. Salvation is a part of it, going into that, but salvation isn't the end game. Salvation, not just to save your life, but our end game is atonement, is to be at one with God. That is the end point. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you here on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He understood what it meant to be at one with his Father. So when he wasn't at one with his Father, the anguish came. And he wanted to return to that glory. He, his goal, what he needed, was to be returned to at one with his Father. That's why he asked, return me to the glory that I had with you before the world was. Back when our wills were one, back when our minds were together, back when we were traveling the same path, return me to the glory which I had with you before the world was. Glorify with. When we are glorified, it is because we are with God. When we... The end of this life, when we partake of the next, when we receive that glory, it will be because we are with God. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We sometimes the Christian movement sometimes gets caught up with the word salvation. It's that salvation is the end of the line, the end, the end game. But we see here that it really isn't. Salvation is an extremely important part of the process but it's part of the overall process. There's much more to the story than simply being saved. There's a new body, a new name, ultimately glory with God. And we can see that here. Verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Remember that goal way back in Genesis, to be after his image and his likeness? That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So salvation, the fact that having your life saved by the salvation through the sacrificed blood of Jesus Christ is part of the process. But it's not about saving your own skin as the end game. It's about becoming at one with God and becoming at one with all of mankind. Together, being everybody being at one with God. So we can see how the story of mankind's redemption culminates in atonement. Being in a state of unity with God. So the impact of sin from the first sin that was committed by Adam and Eve when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when they were banished from the garden when the angel was set outside to guard it with the flaming swords Man has been separated from God through sin. Sin causes God grief. Sin causes him sadness. However it is that God can feel grief and sadness, we don't know. We just know that's what Scripture tells us. That he was grieved, he was sad by our sin. 
Sin keeps us separate from God. It has no bearing on God's ability to be God. And we'll get into that a little bit later as well. But how complete, completely sinful man becomes when they are separated from God. So much so that even when our Savior took all the sins upon his shoulders, God had to turn his back and walk away. Because God can't be associated with sin. And Christ wanted to return to the glory, to returning to the sense of unity and atonement and being at one with his Father that they had had throughout, for lack of a better word, for all of time, all of history, all of eternity. Let's go to Exodus chapter 12. And let's compare the sacrifices of Passover with the sacrifice at atonement and see, see the the grand scope of this sacrifice of atonement time. Exodus chapter 12. See the differences in the how God instructed his people to keep Passover and how he instructed his people to keep atonement. Exodus chapter 12. Pick it up in verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat of it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native born, and one for the stranger who dwells among you. And we know that each family would kill a lamb. The tenth of the month, of the first month, they would select a lamb, they would keep it for four days, and then each family would kill a lamb. If there was a little too much for a family, you could bring a couple of families together. But there were always hundreds, thousands of lambs killed at Passover time, one per family. Let's go forward and see that in 2 Chronicles chapter 30. 2 Chronicles chapter 30. When Hezekiah reintroduced the Passover, verse 13, 2 Chronicles 30. Now many people a very great assembly gathered at Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Love and in the second month. That was a special keeping of the, of the spring holy days that year because they were not ready for the first time. But that's a, a sidebar that we don't need to go into at this point. They arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem, and they took away all the incense altars and cast them into the brook Kidron. When they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the second month, the priests and the Levites were ashamed and sanctified themselves and brought the burnt offerings, plural, to the house of the Lord. They stood in their place according to their custom, according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests sprinkled the blood received from the hand of the Levites, for there were many in the assembly who had not sanctified themselves. Therefore the Levites had charge of the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean to sanctify them to the Lord. For a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, 
Issachar and Zebulun had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God. The Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. So as they were learning the process, their hearts were in the right place. They didn't quite follow the, the, the God's regulations. But Hezekiah spoke on behalf of them and asked God to accept their sacrifices. And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. So we can see, again, in keeping of the Passover, there were many lambs slaughtered. One per household for the, the, the again, reaching back to the, the, exodus, the period of the Exodus, where each family was protected by the blood of the Lamb. Obviously, reflective of our individual commitment to God and His covenant, which we celebrate every year at Passover. Let's go back to Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16. And see the difference with the Day of Atonement. spoke to Moses after the death of the, of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. This was a special time. You couldn't go into the holy of holies whenever you felt like it. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash. It continues to tell how what Aaron needed to do. Number six. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and his house. So the priesthood was set apart, the wicked priesthood was set apart, and in order to... to partake of this, these special events, Aaron had to offer a sin offering for the, the sins of his family and himself. Dropping down, verse 11, Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. Verse 15, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So shall he make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. So he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. One lamb for all of Israel. Not one for family that got them out of Egypt and saved them from the Egyptians. But once a year, the high priest, just him, would go into the Holy of Holies, and after offering an offering 
for himself and his family would offer the offering of one goat for all the sins of all the people. Reflective of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God for the sins of mankind. So there's the personal covenant that each of us has with God that we covered off at the time of the Passover, which is why each family could kill a lamb. But at the time of the Day of Atonement, there was only one lamb that was needed. One sprinkling, one shedding of blood by the high priest inside this special place before God that would cover the sins of all the people. We can see that. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. Just remind you of where we were last Sabbath with Pastor Adrian's Bible study. And we see the grand impact that this sacrifice, that the period of atonement has on all of mankind. But this was just not an individual sacrifice for a person's sins or the sins of a family, but this was for the entire assembly. Verse 11 of Hebrews 9. We were here last week. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. And we remember Pastor Adrian going through this, that it only lasted once, and we had to do it every year. It was something that had to be repeated every year, because it wasn't the ultimate sacrifice that we know to be Christ's. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For there, where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all people according to the law, he took blood of cows and goats, which we read about, with water, scarlet wool, hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. And dropping down to verse 23, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So this is all, again, pointing long-term towards the atonement for all of mankind. For when Christ has not entered, verse 24, the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, he then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So with this one magnificent sacrifice, all sin is put away. Man is made at one with God because the testator died for those sins. Again, referring back to the sermons we heard last week. But we see the comparison between the individual sacrifice of our personal covenant with God 
at the time of the Passover that required a lamb for every family versus this, this sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, this special day, when the high, only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies once a year and offer a lamb for the sins of all the people. Because when man was banished from Eden, God's entire focus was atonement for his, for his creation. Atonement for man. Hebrews chapter 13. As we consider atonement and its impact on the entire history of mankind from the time we were banished from Eden, I'd like us to consider one other point. We must become at one with God, not He with us. We must strive to become at one with Him, not the other way around. Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to go through a few scriptures and see why this becomes important. Of course, this is a principle I'd like to pull it out of context here. We're going to go through Hebrews 11, 12, and 13 at some point in the near future. But the principle here I'd like to pull out for purposes of this discussion is in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He hasn't changed. So keep that in mind. Let's go back to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. And in verse 6. For I am the eternal, and I do not change. So there are two, two witnesses, so to speak, we see here. God doesn't change. God is the same as he has always been. Whatever that means to a finite people that cannot grasp what eternity really is, God has always been the same. He has never changed. Referring back to Genesis chapter 3, you don't need to turn there, but that was when God looked upon Adam and Eve and said, Who told you? Who told you you were naked? As I was preparing this message, I came across that, and, and for me, it, it, was a, it, was a, it was a an eye-opening understanding, where it's just part of the it's just part of the fall of man account. But when I read that, who who moved? Who told you you were naked? No one besides God has a right to tell you you were naked. No one has a right to tell you something that God tells tells you is not true. So who told you, God said? Who did you let come between us? Who moved from our state of oneness? We were one for since I since you breathed your first, and now there's something between us. Someone else has gotten in between you and has told you something that's not true. When did you stop making me your sole source of information? Because I haven't changed. I don't move. I'm the same yesterday, today, forever. I don't change. How did you change? Why did you change? Job 35. Let's go to Job chapter 35. We know the story of Job and his three friends and their interaction. And God condemned Job and his friends at the end of this book for their everyone being way off base in, in their discussions with each other, 
But we come to the young man Elihu, who was of sound mind. And everything up to Elihu's point is really not good doctrine, because we've got folks bantering back and forth, and both sides are arguing over stuff that's not true. We come to Elihu, and as he's trying to defend God to Job, he says this, verse 1, Job chapter 35. Moreover, Elihu answered and said, Do you think this is right? Do you think my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, what advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I sinned? Is my righteousness better than God's? How does that make you any better? I will answer you, verse 4, and your companions with you. Look to the heavens and see, and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. And here's what I wanted to hone in on. If you sin, what do you accomplish against him? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, the other side of the coin, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects a man such as you, and your righteousness a son of man. If we sin, that doesn't affect God. He'll get sad, as he said he does. But God's eternity, God's, God's state of being, is not affected when we sin. He doesn't become more sinful if we sin. He doesn't become more righteous if we're righteous. And that's what Elihu was trying to point out to Job here. You're trying to make yourself out that God owes you something? That because you're a good guy, God owes you these things? It doesn't affect God internally if we sin. It doesn't affect him if we're righteous. Why? Because his plan is going to happen, whether we're part of it or not. doesn't matter who's going to be a part of it. His plan will, will proceed. His plan will take effect. Job thought he was much more than he really was. And he eventually, as after Elihu and God spoke to him, he figured things out. But it's interesting here how Elihu talks to him and says, what do you accomplish against God by sinning? Or what do you accomplish by being righteous? God is not changed by your sin or by your righteousness. So our behavior doesn't affect God. It has no bearing on his righteousness. It only affects us. It only affects us. So when we are not at one with God, we moved, not him. So the onus is on us. Let's go back to Malachi 3. Finish the passage. sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances, and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. There's a specific order here in the atonement process. Return to me, and I will return to you. I'm here. I haven't changed. My truths have been the same from beginning to end. haven't changed. So if somebody moved, you need to figure out who that was and move back. God is saying, return to me and I will return to you. 
return to me and I will return to you. You can see this theme of atonement since man has been kicked out and banished from the Garden of Eden. And it is interesting to note that when they were banished from Eden, they simply moved on. There's no record of some of them asking to stay or saying sorry. They moved east. And I found that interesting as I read that account today. That God here says, return to me, and I will return to you. That's always been his message. But man simply moved on. Revelation chapter 20. Who told you you were naked? Who did that? Who got between us and confused you and told you something that was not true? Who did that? Revelation 20 and verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. For man to have any chance of being at one with God on a global scale, we have to remove the one who is confusing the issue. We have to, the one who came between God and man and told him an untruth has to be removed from the scene so that there's no confusion, there's no deception. Satan will be bound and removed from the scene so that man has a chance to be at one with God. So that he should deceive the nations no more. This day pictures a time when man gets a chance. When the confusion will be gone, when there's no bartering for our loyalty, the good angel and the bad angel, so to speak. When there's no one confusing the issue, when there's no one saying, you're naked. When God said, God never said any such thing. Universal atonement made possible on this day by the events pictured by this day. John chapter 17. John 17. first created as the, the ultimate part of the creation. The one whom God was going to grow his family through. And he was going to give him his, his mind. He was going to allow him to partake in his family. To be made in his image and after his likeness. And we forced him to banish us. Atonement has been what God has been working towards the entire time. Verse 20 of John 17, I do not pray for these alone, but all for those, also for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. So that eventually, at one, sometime, they can understand and really grasp this oneness that we share. That they may also be one in us, 
and that the world, when they see this, the world will believe that you sent me. So our oneness with God isn't just for us. It's not just to get us saved. Our oneness has an impact on the entire world, that they see that there is a better way to live, that we can be at one, we can be at peace, we can have everything God ever desired us to have. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Just as God and Christ are one, that is our destiny. Just as they are one, we will be one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, he continues, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. When he came to earth, he became a human being, and developed relationships like we have, and he knew what oneness was like, he wants to share that. He wanted to share that. So when God walked away from him, it was tough, but he could take it, because he wants to share that oneness. He wants us to feel, ultimately, that oneness that he feels with God. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare that the love which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Christ's last prayer to his Father, in sight of his disciples, was a plea for oneness. Was a plea that all mankind, can experience oneness together with God, the Father, and Jesus Christ. After 33 years on this earth, being partially removed from this oneness, he fully understand, understood the concept of separation. He fully grasped this concept. That's why he said, return me to that glory that I had with you. I want to go back. We haven't experienced it, but through Christ and through his, his discussions here in his Gospels, that should be something that we focus on. Not just salvation, not just saving our own skins, but oneness that the entire world, world can partake of. The sanctuary, the two goats, fasting, the jubilee, everything ultimately points to the real lesson of this day. The real lesson of this life that we live. And the real lesson of our entire history. Oneness with God. From the time we were banished from Eden, everything God has done was to point us towards oneness with Him. He didn't want to take the tree of life away from us but he did so to protect us. Because he knew there was a way that he could get bring us back. We could bring us back into the fold and offer us oneness again. Looking forward into the future, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I saw the holy city, which New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heavens from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them, and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And he showed me a pure river of water of life. It's clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve them. He will be our God. We will be his people. And we will finally be at one with him. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.